Welcome back to another episode of the Ninja Nerd Podcast. Today's episode is going to be all about talking drugs that will treat hyperlipidemia. We're going to have a lot of fun as always. And remember, ninjanerd.org, grab your subscription, your notes, your illustrations, everything that you need to really follow along and make this worth it. All right. So, Zach, hyperlipidemia, it's a pretty common disease. So common <laughs> that I suffer from hyperlipidemia. <laughs> now, hold on a minute. I, you know, I, I do. My lipid panel, it's not great. Okay. It's not the best thing in the world. Cholesterol is not great, but I'm working on it. I'm actively working on it. Me and Zach and Kristen, we're going to the gym every day. We're watching our diet. We're just making sure to be a little bit more accountable and it's working. I feel great. It's, it's been good so far. Uh, but I, I, I do have to say that my weakness right now is, uh, fruity pebbles. <laughs> yeah. You just, he just gets like a, a mixing bowl. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fr- fruity pebbles, cocoa pebbles, uh, Captain Crunch. Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Just any cereal. Yeah, yeah, cereal, cereal. It's a work in progress. But again, I'm really working hard at it. So is Zach. So is Kristen. And I think that's really an important first step. Anyway, to to get off that soapbox, can you tell me, Zach, a little bit about the complications of hyperlipidemia and what signs I need to look out before I collapse? (laughs) Absolutely. So hyperlipidemia is a very important disease to understand. So basically the pathophysiology here is if you guys remember from our lipoprotein metabolism video, because I know you guys remember that. If a patient has hyperlipidemia, there's three particular parameters that you want to think about. The patient either has an increase in LDL. And remember, the problem with LDL is that LDL really likes to deposit a lot of cholesterol and triglycerides into the the actual vessel walls. And so because of that, it can actually lead to a lot of these atherosclerotic plaques that can actually form. The other one... The other parameter is HDL. So if patients have very low HDL, that's one of the lipoproteins that helps to be able to remove and help to gain some of the actual the actual fat and cholesterol out of the plaque. So it helps to be able to remove some of the actual atheromatous material. If you have less HDL, you're not going to be able to remove as much of that atheromatous material. And again, you propagate that plaque formation. The last one is triglycerides. So if patients have very high triglycerides due to lots of VLDLs or lots of chylomicrons, again, that's lots of triglycerides that can deposit into not just the actual vessel wall, but allows a deposition into other like tissues of the body. And that's the other thing. I think one of the big complications here is yes, the cholesterol, the fat that's deposited into the vessel walls can lead to a lot of atherosclerotic cardiovascular diseases, such as if it gets stuck in a vessel that supplies the brain, you can lead to an acute ischemic stroke. It could also uh, kind of block off the vessels that are actually within the coronary arteries. And that could really cause a lot of decreased perfusion to the myocardium that can lead to a myocardial infarction or just coronary artery disease. It also could plaque up the vessels within your legs. And then guess what? When you're trying to walk outside or run up a hill, oh, God, by the way, guys, I was stupid because I got a, probably some degree of hyperlipidemia. And I was like, hey, man, I got to start working out and I got to be more intense. And so I was like, hey, I'm going to run up this hill. I'm going to start doing like hill sprints. And so the other day, I'm just... I'm thinking I'm Creed and I'm just like, dun, dun, dun. I'm running and sprinting up this hill, blow a hammy. So just be careful. <laughs> I, 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 hey guys, I told him, I said, Hey, Zach, like we're at a point in our lives where we're past that. Yeah. We're, we're, you know, we're not Creed. We're not out there doing no, doing, no doing hardcore sprints, man. We're on the elliptical. Oh right? man. Yeah. It was so bad. Blew that hammy. I was like, well, that that's terrible. But yeah, that's the whole, I think concept to understand is that you can get plaques within those vessels of the arteries within the extremities, particularly the 
legs. And so because of that, you don't get a lot of perfusion to those muscles. You can end up with a lot of actual, like sometimes for these patients, extreme pain with walking. So they have that claudication. Sometimes it can completely occlude the blood flow and you end up with an ischemic limb. So big, big complications to watch out for there. The other thing I think that's really important is you can get a lot of deposition of this cholesterol and fat into solid organs. And so you can get these things called xanthomas that can kind of be around joint areas. You can have xanthelasma, these fatty plaques that can develop around the eye. You can have a corneal arcus, which is, again, these kind of like fatty lipids that can deposit around the cornea. You can have hepatic steatosis to increase the risk of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which can lead to cirrhosis, pretty nasty. And on top of that, with triglycerides that are extremely high, sometimes greater than like a thousand milligrams per DL, you increase the risk of like pancreatitis which is another terrible thing. So a lot of like scary complications can come from hyperlipidemia, which again is usually due to three particular lipid parameters. There's high LDL, high triglycerides, and low HDL. And that seems to be the pretty much significant problem with patients who have hyperlipidemia, Rob. I think it's going to be important, Zach. Uh, we'll have to keep the engineers updated throughout your hamstring rehabilitation. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm going I'm to make sure to use all of my PT power on you, and, and yeah, we're going to make sure he gets back in good shape. I'm going to need it, man, because we we started like working legs, and we got we just started this really awesome gym, powerhouse gym. It's got a lot of great equipment, and yeah, I'm hurting, man, because I'm going to have to wa- watch Rob uh, go and enjoy, you know, doing some deadlifts and some great squats, and I'm just going to be over there, like you know, icing my ham bone, you know, just <laughs> no, I'll, I'll figure a way. To, to ruin that real quick. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be smart and we'll keep working out and we'll, and we'll update you guys along the, the way of his rehab. No, well, please do. Yeah. <laughs> so overall, Zach, what you're saying to me then with my hyperlipidemia is I'm screwed. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm screwed. My luck, I'll end up with a huge stroke. Am I lose my leg from PAD and I'll blow a triple A. <laughs> No, that's not going to happen, right, engineers? I'm making diet modifications. I'm doing. I'm, I'm exercising daily. I'm making lifestyle changes. All of these really important things that that come way before the medications. I don't want to get there. So that's what I'm working on. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna get there. But anyway, how do I avoid this hyperlipidemia, Zach, from absolutely butt ramming me? <laughs> So I think if a patient is doing what Rob is saying, that's the first thing. Dietary modifications, exercise, stop drinking, stop smoking, make risk factor modifications, things that you can modify, modify those things. Um, to try to do your best to help to be able to lower that LDL, lower the triglycerides, and again, increase your HDL. A lot of the times, especially the triglyceridemia, that's definitely diet related. So trying to be able to change those things is extremely important. Now, obviously do remember that patients may have some type of genetic or familial hyperlipidemia that can be related to certain types of enzymatic or receptor mutations and alterations. That's a different story. We're not going to focus on that here. We're going to kind of clump them into this discussion, but realize that's a completely different scenario that has nothing to do with the patient's risk factors, such as acquired causes like diabetes, like, you know, people who smoke, who are overweight, who have a poor diet, who have nephrotic syndrome, who have hypothyroidism particular medication-induced hyperlipidemia, et cetera. But I think the big thing is if you've made those modifications to your actual life, exercise, diet, stop smoking, stop drinking, et cetera, but the patient still has hyperlipidemia, that high LDL, the high triglycerides, and the low HDL, start throwing on some lipid-lowering therapy. And I think that's going to be the key thing. Okay, Zach. So we have really six lipid-lowering medication categories to go over here, and those include HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors, niacin, fibrates, bile acid sequestrants, 
cholesterol absorption inhibitors, and PCSK9 inhibitors. Zach, please go into a little bit more detail on these six drug categories, including their mechanism of action, adverse drug reactions, and anything else important that we should really be knowing. Absolutely. So I think one of the big things is that whenever a patient has hyperlipidemia, they've been diagnosed, they got a lipid panel, came back, their LDL is like 730. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Triglycerides, don't. triglycerides are like 3000. You know, <laughs> oh HDL is like, gosh. like, like two. That and so, so horrible. You have a patient who's like, you know, they've tried, they've changed, they're not getting any better. I think this first drug line is going to be the first most important drug that you're going to need to put into their actual life. And that's HMG CoA reductase inhibitors. These are your statins. So. This includes atorvastatin, rosuvastatin, fluvastatin, lovastatin, fluvastatin, simvastatin, pravastatin. Anything that's All, statin, right? Yeah, anything yeah. that's got that statin <laughs> on the end, that's going to be the drug of choice that you're going to start off with in these patient populations. And I think that's really important. I think one quick uh, thing to discuss, though, while we're talking here is that you should know the basic difference between what's called high-intensity statins and moderate-intensity statins. So high-intensity statins are going to be very specifically rosuvastatin, but it has to be a particular dosage of rosuvastatin, so anything greater than 20 milligrams, greater than or equal to 20 milligrams, is considered a high dose statin or intensity statin. Um, and then the other one is atorvastatin. Anything atorvastatin greater than or equal to 40 milligrams is considered a high intensity statin. The moderate intensity statins is going to be your fluvastatin, lovastatin, pravastatin, simvastatin, but it can also be rosuvastatin. It just has to be less than 20 milligrams. And it can also be atorvastatin. It just has to be less than 40 milligrams. And that'll come into play when we talk about the guideline therapy, according to A. ACCAHA guidelines. But the basic mechanism of action is what their name tells you, HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors. There's an enzyme. And what this enzyme does is it takes, there's generally inside of your hepatocytes, you have something called acetyl-CoA. Acetyl-CoA will get converted into what's called HMG-CoA, which will then be utilized to make something called mevalonate. And mevalonate is a precursor to make cholesterol. If I give a drug called HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors, it's going to inhibit the enzyme that converts HMG-CoA into mevalonate, and so I get less cholesterol. If I have less cholesterol in the hepatocytes, there's a couple things that happen. One is I have less of the cholesterol to combine with triglycerides and make VLDLs. And so therefore, if I have less VLDLs, VLDLs are basically triglyceride and cholesterol containing lipoproteins. If I have less VLDLs, I'll actually have less carrying of triglycerides through the bloodstream. And so I'll actually can drop my triglycerides a little bit. That's one thing. The second thing is that when there's less cholesterol, what it does is it creates this very interesting signaling mechanism. It says, hey, okay, there's not a lot of cholesterol. I got to try to bring cholesterol into the cell. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to stimulate particular enzymes that actually uh, basically transcribe DNA into RNA. Then I'm going to translate that RNA into proteins. Then I'm going to take those proteins and I'm going to go ahead and put them up on this cell membrane. And guess what that protein is that it increases? It increases the expression of LDL receptors. LDL receptors are receptors that bind to LDL. LDL is a bad cholesterol, as they refer to it. it, contains lots and lots of cholesterol. So if I actually bind lots of LDL molecules and pull them into the cell, there's a twofold thing with this. One is I bring cholesterol into the cell because there's less of it, but I pull LDL out of the blood. So I lower the LDL within the blood. And that's one of the most profound effects. And the second thing is through a mechanism that we don't completely understand, it actually may increase the synthesis of HDL molecules. And so you get three effects here. You lower the LDL, you increase the HDL, and you also lower the triglycerides. But the most profound one, my friends, is going to be it lowers the LDL. 
So that's how it works. What are some of the things that you have to watch out for when you're putting patients on this medication? First one is it actually is metabolized by the liver, so it can bump those LFTs a little bit. So maybe consider getting some LFTs like every six months on these patients just to watch that. Maybe you have to decrease the dose a little bit if that's the situation. The other thing is that patients may complain of tenderness or pain or weakness in their muscles. This is due to the myopathic effect of it. Statins actually can deplete the coenzyme Q inside of your actual skeletal muscles. And coenzyme Q is needed in the electron transport chain. If we don't have it, you don't aren't able to generate an ATP production. And so muscles depend upon ATP to be able to contract and perform their functions. And so this can lead to a lot of weakness and pain and tenderness. So watch out for that. Sometimes if it's really, really bad, the myopathy can actually cause the muscle cells to lice and bust open and release CK, what's called creatinine kinase. And the other one is called myoglobin. And those can get leaked out into the bloodstream as well. So sometimes you really want to watch out for anything called rhabdomyolysis. So if you think that the patient has extreme muscle pain due to the statins, consider checking a CK, but also check their renal function to make sure that they don't have an acute kidney injury from the rhabdomyolysis. All right. That's the first drug category. The second one is going to be niacin. Niacin, and here's the other thing. You're going to rarely see most of these other drugs that we're going to talk about mentioned, but we're going to quickly go through them and talk about how we can augment statin therapy or if patients can't tolerate the statin because they have just rip-roaring myopathy or they're on a statin and they're not actually getting a goal that they're supposed to reach with their LDL or HDL or triglycerides, we add on these other drugs. So it's important to remember them. But the first one's niacin. So niacin is basically very interesting. So in our fat tissue, we have an enzyme. It's called hormone-sensitive lipase. And what it does is it breaks down triglycerides into free fatty acids. So if I inhibit that enzyme, I inhibit the conversion of triglycerides into free fatty acids by the adipose cells. That means that I have less free fatty acids that are being transported in the blood. That means the liver takes up less of those free fatty acids. That means the liver has less free fatty acids to make triglycerides. That means that the liver has less triglycerides to combine with cholesterol to make VLDL. That means I lower the VLDL in the blood and I lower the primary lipoprotein that carries tons of triglycerides within the bloodstream and a little bit of cholesterol. So effectively, I'll lower the triglycerides. Plus, guess what else VLDL makes, Rob? It makes LDL. So... VLDL will actually be metabolized eventually into what's called IDL, and then it'll be metabolized into LDL. So if I lower the patient's VLDL, I'll lower the triglycerides, but I'll also lower the production of LDL molecules as well. And so I can also lower their LDL. So I get a two-part benefit to this drug. One is I lower VLDL, which lowers triglycerides, and the other one is I'll lower my LDL. There's one more cool benefit to this drug. It's also been shown to be able to inhibit the catabolism of HDL by the macrophages in those blood vessel plaques, and it also reduces the reuptake in the liver. So that means that less of the LDL is getting, I mean, so less of the HDL is getting broken down and less of the HDL is being taken up by the liver. What does that mean for the amount of HDL that's in your blood? It increases. And so it can really significantly increase your HDL, which is actually a beneficial thing because that can help to remove more of the plaque from those vessel walls. So nice. And what I want you to remember, the effect that it has on the lipid profile is it primarily will really increase your HDL. It'll drop your LDL and it'll also drop your triglycerides. That's the cool thing with this one. I know statins are so commonly used and, and, and they sound great, but honestly, everything you're talking about with niacin sounds perfect. Yeah, I think. Why that, won't this be prescribed more often? Yeah, I know. You would think it'd be great, but the only problem with niacin is it has some really unattractive uh, adverse reactions. Okay, there we go. And I think one of the big things for this one is that it has the ability to really amp up what's called prostaglandin production. And when it amps up that 
prostaglandin production, what it's been shown to do is it really causes a lot of like vasodilation and a lot of histamine release that causes a lot of like flushing and redness and itching um, usually after you take that. And that's usually because it really stimulates the arachidonic acid pathway, which busts out tons of prostaglandins. Usually you can actually treat the patient with like aspirin or ibuprofen beforehand to kind of reduce that. But again, that's kind of an undesirable effect. The other thing is if a patient's got like, like, <laughs> like gout, um, so they get that big old painful, you know, big toe and you go ahead and give them niacin, you're going to jack up their uric acid levels because it actually inhibits uric acid secretion. So then get hyperuricemia and then increase their risk of gout. The other thing is that oftentimes, believe it or not, patients who have uh, hyperlipidemia, guess what else they also have? Diabetes. It's very common. And so because of that, diabetes is a very problematic thing. Guess what niacin can actually do? It can actually inhibit insulin release and cause somewhat insulin resistance as well. And so because of that, it actually may increase the blood glucose levels and worsen a patient's underlying diabetes. So I think those are three particular things why we would want to be careful utilizing niacin. However, if a patient is not at goal with their statin and they have a low A HDL and their triglycerides are a little bit low and their LDL still a little bit high, then I actually might be considering adding on niacin because it may drop that LDL a little bit more. It may increase that HDL and it also may drop their trigs a little bit as well. So that might be a beneficial one to add on. Hmm. Sounds awfully familiar. Taking niacin, <laughs> but taking aspirin maybe a half hour prior to taking that <laughs> blunt the effects of that flushing and absolutely itching. sounds a lot like a practice question that we had in a, <laughs> in on in the a video. certain lecture yep, yep yep maybe it would be in that lipid lowering medication lecture yeah. <laughs> be on the lookout for that ninja nerds yeah, check okay. that out ninja nerds <laughs> all right the next drug category is fibrates fibrates are actually pretty cool as well the basic mechanism is they increase the activity of an enzyme called lipoprotein lipase now lipoprotein lipase is a very cool enzyme that's found within our capillary system that is supplying the capillaries that are supplying like adipose tissue and skeletal muscle tissue. So what happens here is that VLDLs, which contain lots of triglycerides and cholesterol, but more triglycerides and chylomicrons, which are going to be basically lipoproteins that come from your GIT that enter into the lymphatic circulation and then into your blood vessel circulation. These also contains tons of triglycerides, way more than VLDLs and a little bit less cholesterol. So you got two lipoproteins carrying tons of triglycerides. They move through this capillary system which is supplying skeletal muscles and adipose tissue. They got this enzyme in the capillary endothelium called lipoprotein lipase. It takes and breaks down tons of the triglycerides in the VLDL and in the chylomicron, effectively lowering the amount of triglycerides that are in those lipoproteins, lowering the triglycerides in the blood. If it breaks down the triglycerides, it rips them out of the blood and then converts them into free fatty acids that get taken up into the adipose tissue and stored as triglycerides or get taken up into the skeletal muscle and get broken down for ATP to utilize for them for as an energy source. That's a really cool concept. So these drugs can significantly plummet your triglycerides. So that's a very attractive drug in patients who are very high triglycerides, uh, which may actually be due to like a familial or inherited cause. Actually, maybe an interesting one to add on. The other concept here is that these drugs, if you do drop VLDLs, again, by virtue, you're going to drop the patient's LDL. So it has a mild LDL reduction, but here's what's really, really cool. It actually stimulates the liver to produce lots of HDL. And so if you increase the actual HDL production, that would also be a benefit. So you can really think about niacin and fibrates having a very similar type of like effect on the lipid profile. They both profoundly increase HDL and they both drop the triglycerides, which is pretty interesting. But fibrates, remember, it profoundly drops the triglycerides way more than niacin will. 
So with fibrates, the one thing that you got to be careful with with this drug is that it is renally excreted. And so if patients have a very poor renal function, it actually may decrease the excretion of this drug and cause more side effects. The other thing is that fibrates really kind of interact. So oftentimes we add fibrates with statins, right? If a patient's not at goal and they have high triglycerides, we can add on the fibrate to drop the triglycerides a little bit more and increase their HDL. Only downside is, is that fibrates inhibit the breakdown of statins. So that means statins are going to be in higher drug levels. What do you think will happen to these patients' poor muscles? They're going to have terrible myopathy. So it can really increase their myopathy, increase the risk of rhabdo, and cause potential acute kidney injury if they have a really significant rhabdo. So really watch out for that. The patient may have worsening myopathy if they're taking a statin and a fibrate. One other thing for fibrates besides it being renally excreted is it also uh, inhibits uh, bile acid secretion. So we know bile is important and the two main components of bile is cholesterol and bile acids. If you inhibit bile acid secretion, you have less bile acids and a relative increase in cholesterol and the biliary su substances. And guess what? That ratio of having high cholesterol and less bile acids causes it to kind of precipitate out of solution and form gallstones. And so these patients are at high risk of cholelithiasis. So be careful if a patient starts complaining of a very tender, sore, hot, red upper quadrant abdomen, and you look at their medical history and they're taking fibrates, you could have a potential etiological factor there. There. So watch out for fibrates. That's the downside to them. Okay. Next drug category is bile acid sequestrants. Oh, real quick. Fibrates. We didn't talk about the name. This is phenofibrate and gemfibrosal. So I wanted to make sure I mentioned that. Niacin, it's just the own drug. It's, there is actually no other drugs under that actual name category. All right. Bile acid sequestrants. So this one is actually going to be two particular drugs here. Um, so you can have cholesteramine, colistopol, and there is one other one called colcevalam. So you can add that one in there as well. Now, what do these drugs do? The way they work is they help to actually kind of like bind on to bile acids. So generally bile acids are a part of our bile. So our liver will make these bile acids. They'll put it into the, the biliary substance. It'll move down via the common bile duct, get pushed into the small intestine. And what the bile acids will do is they'll bind onto fats and cholesterol and fat soluble vitamins and help them to get absorbed across the GIT because we can't really absorb fats without bile. And so what happens is, is if you bind up those bile acids, you actually can alter the absorption of those fat substances, the cholesterol, the fatty free fatty acids, the vitamins. But here's the big thing. Bile acids, after they're done helping with absorption, they move through the small intestine and they get reabsorbed and they get put into what's called the portal circulation. And then from the portal circulation, they'll go back up to the liver. So this is called the enterohepatic circulation. So they'll get reabsorbed across the GIT into the actual blood circulation, go to the liver, and then the liver will just recycle that bile acids and put them back into the bile so that you can help to absorb the actual fats and cholesterol. If I give a bile acid sequestrant, it binds onto the bile acid, prevents it from getting reabsorbed. So now I don't put bile acids into my enterohepatic circulation. I don't have bile acids going back to the liver. Now, the liver has to make more bile acids. Well, guess what uh, bile acid is primarily made up of, Rob? Cholesterol. So then what happens is, is I'm going to have to take and divert all that dang cholesterol that I was using to make other things like steroid hormones, or maybe I was using it to make cell membrane things or make lipoproteins. I'm going to have to divert a lot of that cholesterol to making more bile acids. And so that's what happened. Cholesterol starts, you know, making tons and gets started getting utilized to make bile acids. So then the amount of cholesterol in the hepatocytes, guess what? 
it decreases. If the cholesterol in the hepatocytes decreases, it then signals an increase in LDL receptors, just like statins did. And if you increase the number of LDL receptors, because you got to bring more cholesterol into the cell because you're using it all to make bile acids, guess what? You pull a lot of LDL into the cells. What does that do? Yes, it gives more cholesterol to the hepatocytes, but it lowers the LDL within the blood. So these patients will profoundly drop their LDL. One of the downsides, though, is that some of the enzymes that are used in bile acid synthesis are also used in triglyceride synthesis. And so you actually may make a lot of triglycerides, unfortunately. So these patients may actually bump their triglycerides. So don't give this to a patient if they have hypertriglyceridemia, maybe. But they do profoundly drop the LDL. So that's the really cool thing about bile acid sequestrants. What are the downsides? What are the problematic things that you have to be careful for with this drug? Well, it actually does bind up a lot of fat-soluble vitamins, vitamin A, D, E, K. So you could actually have deficiencies in those. The other thing is it can bind up things like warfarin. It can bind up things like digoxin. So you actually may have subtherapeutic levels of these drugs. And so it may be very important if you're having a patient who's taking cholesterol or cholestopol or colcevalam, one of these bile acid sequestrants, make sure if they're taking digoxin, if they're taking warfarin, or even if they're taking their levothyroxine, make sure that they take it like an hour before they take their actual bile acid sequestrant so it doesn't get bound up and then it doesn't get absorbed. Very, very important to make sure that you consider that. Um, that's the big thing with this drug. The only other thing is that this is actually a drug that we can utilize that's very safe in pregnancy. And so that's actually really cool. We often use it in patients who have what's called um, cholestasis of pregnancy. And so if patients actually have a lot of bile um, kind of stasis, those bile acids can kind of leak into the bloodstream, cause a lot of itching and puritis and can be toxic to the fetus. We can actually give these drugs to get rid of them out of the body. So it's actually pretty cool. So another kind of benefit to these drugs is that they could be beneficial in patients who have hyperlipidemia and guess what? They're also pregnant. The other drug category that I want you guys to remember is cholesterol absorption inhibitors. I actually do like this drug and I am a fan of this drug. I like to add this on to patients who are on statins or can't actually tolerate a statin. I do like this one. And I think it's also really great because it really has very little side effects. So cholesterol absorption inhibitors, there's really just like one drug and that's azetamib. And what's really cool about this drug is think about it. Cholesterol is, you know, it gets absorbed when it gets absorbed across the GIT and then gets taken up in the liver. The liver then can use that cholesterol to be able to make a lot of different things. It can use it to make more lipoproteins, which is a problematic thing. What if I give this drug azetamib? It binds onto the cholesterol. You don't absorb it. If I don't absorb it into the bloodstream, that means I have less of the cholesterol that gets taken to the liver. If less cholesterol is taken to the liver, what's the problem? That means that there's less cholesterol in the hepatocytes. What did that, what happened? I already just mentioned this like what, twice already, Rob? Statins, they lower the uh, amount of cholesterol in the hepatocytes. Bilases questions lower the amount of cholesterol in the hepatocytes. Cholesterol absorption inhibitors lower the amount of cholesterol in the hepatocytes. What is that going to do? It's going to reflexively increase the number of LDL receptors. If I increase those number of LDL receptors, yes, I'll have more LDL to bind to, bring it inside of the cell, so I have more cholesterol inside of the cell, but what do I do? I effectively lower the amount of LDL within the bloodstream then. So this is a drug that is phenomenal at dropping the patient's LDL. It really doesn't have a significant effect on dropping triglycerides. It doesn't really have a significant effect on increasing your HDL, but it's pretty darn good at dropping your LDL. And so that's one of the benefits to this drug, and really it doesn't 
come with many adverse reactions. So that's what's nice about it. It may cause a little bit of like GI upset because you're not absorbing a ton of fat. So that actually may cause a little bit of GI upset. Um, and it may mildly, mildly bump up your LFTs, but it's super mild. So I think it's a great drug to add on to a patient who's on a statin and still not an LDL goal or a patient who can't tolerate a statin. I think that this is a great drug. So I like that one. All right. The last one here. So this is the, what's called the PCSK9 inhibitors. This is like, I don't know. It sounds like that. What's that one boxer on YouTube KSI? It's just like a variant of this guy. So yeah, the PCSK9 inhibitors. <laughs> it's a mouthful. I don't yeah, know. It's, it's an intense one. So it's a really interesting kind of drug category. There's two to these ones. They just remember the Kumabs, the Alarocumab and then Evolocumab. Um, these are pretty interesting drugs, pretty expensive, kind of pricey, but what these drugs really do is there's a protein called PCSK9. And what it does is it binds to the LDL receptors and enhances the endocytosis of them. In other words, it takes the LDL receptors on the outside of the cell, brings them inside of the cell. When you get them inside of the cell, they get packaged into this thing called a vesicle or an endosome. And what happens is that endosome then fuses with lysosomes and lysosomes will, they'll freck up anything. So they'll start chewing up and breaking down the LDL receptors and degrade them. So now what happens? If I have PCSK9, it really will enhance the degradation of LDL receptors. So I'll have less LDL receptors on my cell membrane. I won't be able to bring LDL in. What if I block or inhibit PCSK9? Therefore, I don't endocytose the LDL receptor. I don't put them in an endosome. I don't break them down by lysosomes and I inhibit or prevent their degradation. Then I maintain a lot of LDL receptors on the cell membrane, way more LDL receptors than usual. So now I have more LDL receptor sites to bind onto LDL and to take LDL into the cell. That'll effectively and significantly, my friends, drop the LDL. This is actually probably the best drug at dropping the LDL within the blood. So that's a really cool concept of this drug. And it's also really very mild side effects. It is a subcutaneous injection. So yeah, you might get a little bit of like pain where the injection site is, maybe a little bit of myalgias. Very rarely you get like an upper respiratory kind of like viral infection symptoms kind of thing. But it's really a pretty commonly utilized drug that has very little side effects, just relatively pricey. So that would be the last drug out of the six drug categories that we can utilize to lower the patient's LDL, lower the patient's triglycerides, increase their HDL after they've done their best, try to lose weight, exercise, make some dietary changes, modify some of the things that they can modify. All righty. I almost regret asking you to go into more detail, <laughs> but nonetheless, that was very thorough and it was helpful. So thank you for that. Thanks, man. Here's the problem. I can't be on all these drugs, man. <laughs> There's, there's too many drugs going on yeah, here, you're gonna man. Be on all of them. All, yeah, I'm going to popping pills all day. Yeah, I, it's not, it's polypharmacy, man. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to end up having myopathies worse than Ronnie Coleman. <laughs> Lightweight, baby. I guess I'm stuck with the plaque up vessels of an 85 year old. This is the situation I'm going to find myself in. In all seriousness, Zach, please, for the love of God. Simplify the treatment for hyperlipidemia using ACCAHA guidelines. Yeah, absolutely. So I think if a patient has any of these particular things, they qualify for statin therapy. So I told you statins are going to be the primary drug. Okay. So really when a patient comes in, they have these following things. We should like actually kind of risk stratify them and determine their need for being on a statin. If they've made these things that we talked about, the dietary modifications, the exercise, the they even say drinking a little bit of red wine, etc. If a patient has clinical atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, in other words, 
Rob developed a stroke. He developed an MI. He had an acute limb ischemic event. One of those particular things, he has a triple, something of that nature where he's had a clinical atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease event that's due to those plaques that puts him at a particular like need to be on a statin. It's just the question is, is what dose of a statin really? So that comes down to their age. So if a patient had a clinical event due to their atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, you have to put them on a statin. What the question comes down to is, are they less than 75 or greater than 75? If they're greater than 75, I know this sounds terrible, but you don't need to be as intense. They're probably not going to live as long um, and they're going to have more side effects. So Jeez. thanks, Zach. <laughs> so, so don't go as intense and maybe go to a moderate intensity statin. So any of the other ones, and then, so in other words, you know, fluvastatin, simvastatin, lovastatin, pravastatin, all of those, or rasuvastatin less than 20, atorvastatin less than 40. If they're greater than 75, you go, you go hard, baby. All right. You put them on less a tor. Yeah, so, yeah. Sorry. Less if they, than yeah. So if they're less than yeah. 75. So you just told the, the people who are greater than 75 that <laughs> you'll be dead in, you know, a couple of years. So, Sorry. Just making sure we got that. Yeah. So if we're clear, if you're young, you got a chance, baby. So, <laughs> so go big or go home. <laughs> so yeah, atorvastatin, anything greater than 40, rasuvastatin, anything greater than 20. So that would be for that potential uh, situation. The second reason that you would put a patient on a statin is if their LDL is just like blasting. Like you got like an LDL greater than 190. If you're walking around with an LDL of like 300, you're in trouble, man. Yeah. So you got to be on a statin and there's no joking with that. So you throw them right on a high intensity statin for this patient. So again, statin greater than 20 or torvastatin greater than 40. The next thing is if you have diabetes. So this is why I told you diabetes is very common. It actually increases the risk of hyperlipidemia. So that's one big thing. But if they're diabetic, they're 45 to 70 years of age. And then on top of that, they have what's called this atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk percentage of greater than 7.5%. They're, they're at a high risk. So you don't want to mess around with these patients. Put them on high intensity statins. Okay. The other situation is if you have a diabetic who's 40 to 75, but their calculation, their percent risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease is less than 7.5%, you can relax a little bit and put them on a moderate intensity stat. So again, just to remind you, diabetic 40 to 75, there's two risks. Greater than 7.5, high intensity statin. Less than 7.5, moderate intensity statin. Okay. That's the third particular indication for being put on statins. The last indication is if you have a patient who is not diabetic, but they're 40 to 75 and they have a atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk of greater than 7.5%, that patient is still at risk. They're not a diabetic, so they don't need to be on high intensity, but you should put them on a moderate intensity statin. So that is what the ACCAHA guidelines actually do suggest, that under those four particular circumstances, that'll determine if you get put on a statin, and if you do, which type, high intensity or moderate intensity statin? Does that make sense, Rob? Makes perfect sense. That's awesome. Okay. I think the last thing is, is if you have a patient who, for whatever reason, is not tolerant to the statin or they're on a statin and they're not reaching their particular goal. In other words, you put them on a statin because their LDL was 400, okay? And they had some clinical atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. When you put them on the statin, their LDL didn't drop to maybe your goal of less than 100. And so you've maximized them on a statin. What can you do? You can add on another drug. So what are other drugs that lower LDL? I've talked about them. PCSK9 inhibitors, you can add that one on. Another one is you could add on your uh, bile acid sequestrants. That one will drop the LDL. 
Another one is you could add on the cholesterol absorption inhibitor. That one really drops your LDL. The last one that I would say is niacin. Again, it's not super great to drop in the LDL, but it would kind of be like the last line. So I'd say if a patient is not a goal, add on a PCSK9. I'd say a cholesterol absorption inhibitor over a bile acid sequestrant. And the last would be a bile acid sequestrant. And if they really have no other option, niacin would be the last one. If a patient comes in and let's say that they have an LDL that's, you know, I don't know, one, one, 180, right? Um, you start them on a statin, but their triglycerides are like 700. Okay. So they're not, they're not, re- they're, let's say that you put them on a statin and their LDL did come down, but their triglycerides didn't come down. So their triglycerides are still bumping. They're still, I don't know, maybe in like the 400s. You came from 700 to 400, but they, they've changed their diet. They've tried to work out. They've done some changes there, but you're still not at goal. Then what you can do is you can add on another particular drug. And the two ones that you have as an option to you are fibrates and niacin. If you had to pick one, fibrates are definitely going to be superior to niacin. Just look at the patient's underlying risk factors. Are they at risk for? Uh, so in other words, do they have renal insufficiency? Do they have cholelithiasis? Probably avoid that. Be careful. And also watch out if they're on a statin already, you might increase their myopathy. So just be careful with fibrates for the triglycerides. But that'd be an option that I would go to. The last scenario that I would say, Rob, is if a patient has, let's say, an LDL of 180, triglycerides are actually okay, okay, but their HDL is like two, okay, which is like terrible. That's like horrific. So you put them on a statin, it got their LDL down, you got their triglycerides down, but their HDL didn't bump up. Let's say that it only bumped up to 10 and your goal is to get them to greater than like 50 or greater than 60. I could add on another drug. Obviously, there's other modifications, exercise dietary changes. Again, wine, those kinds of things may actually bump that HDL. I'm not telling you to go down there pounding like, you know, gallons of red wine, people, (laughs) everything in moderation. But there is some things that you could change. But if it's not being done with a statin and those dietary modifications or lifestyle changes, what's another drug that you can add on that'll bump the HDL? That would be your niacin. That'll be your fibrates. The other benefit to those, if a patient has a triglyceride of like 700 and they have an HDL of two, guess what? These drugs will all also be super beneficial because they'll drop the trigs and they'll also bump up your HDL. So consider that with these situations. But that would really cover, I think, the straightforward approach to a patient who has hyperlipidemia at risk of a lot of cardiovascular events. Start them on statin therapy, obviously, depending upon which risk stratification they fall in will determine if they get high intensity or moderate intensity. If they're not meeting their goal or they're intolerant to a statin, what are the other options that we can think about? Or what's the combo therapy? In other words, what can we add on to the statin to reach our LDL goal, our triglyceride goal, or our HDL goal, Rob? All right. And well, that'll be the conclusion of our episode on hyperlipidemia drugs. I'm a little upset. It's come to an end here. We have, we've had a lot of fun so far. <laughs> yeah, this is actually pretty cool. And I really like this This is a really cool one. episode. I think there's a lot of really important information in it. Uh, I, I think just really one more time to, to keep going after this is that don't be afraid uh, uh, and don't underestimate the power of lifestyle modifications, exercise, dietary changes. It's helped me, honestly. My lipid panel, it's not that great, but it's improved. It's improved substantially. So I have to say that's been important for me. And again, if you find yourself in the same position, don't underestimate the power of that these lifestyle modifications have. It's been awesome. And and honestly, it's it's been good for me. Uh, so I think that's been 
really oh. important. And this is, it's been a fun episode. Yeah. And I think I can attest that as well. I think at one point in time I had a treadless ride that was uh, <laughs> like 450. Holy uh, crap. <laughs> and obviously it was due to dietary changes. It was, it was, it was due to very, you know, poor exercise. And so when I put in the work, I changed my diet. I actually was able to make that improvement without having to be on any medications. And I think that's one of the biggest things is you don't want to have to be on these meds. So do everything that you can to prevent that risk. Um, but if you have to, these are the ones that you'll go with. And now we know that and what things to watch out for, for you as well as for your patients. But Ninjaners, I hope that you liked this episode on hyperlipidemia medications. I hope that you guys enjoyed it. And as always, love you. Thank you. And until next time.